You're listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership and peak performance through interviews with some of the greatest team captains and thought leaders in the sports world. Now, here is your host, performance coach, speaker, and author, Ben Smith. Welcome back to the Captain's Coach Podcast. I'm the founder, Ben Smith, and we are excited to bring to you a new guest today that will be discussing narrative war. This is a great topic that has captured my attention over the past six months, and I think it has a lot of value for multiple industries. I've had a hard time wrapping my head around its nuances, so today our guest will try to emphasize uh, and communicate what this means for us as leaders. Uh, he does a great job of emphasizing, especially how it's used in the military, but does a great job of connecting it back to how it can be helpful for you as a, as a coach, especially in regards to how it relates to your team culture and the impact that it can have on your team and the personal identity of each one of your players. Today, we will have Brian Steed on the show. He is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel with more than 30 years of civilian and uniformed experience. He is a practitioner, student, and writer of military theory, Middle East culture, and history. His goal is to communicate the importance of non-kinetic aspects of counterterrorism, defeating violent extremism, irregular warfare, large-scale conflict mediation, and peace building. Brian has written and edited numerous books, articles, and papers on military theory, military history, and cultural awareness, his most recent work being ISIS, The Essential Reference Guy, which will be released, or has been released, um, back in October. Brian's current assignment as a civilian is also his last U.S. Army assignment. He is an assistant professor of military history at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, where he was the 2018 Military Educator of the year. He is also a senior fellow at Narrative Strategies, and you can check him out at narrativespace.net. Now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian. Enjoy. Again, Brian, thanks for coming on. Uh, really excited to talk to you today about narrative warfare. Uh, would love to just kind of start uh, by hearing what your definition for narrative warfare is and where people uh, really go wrong when trying to either implement it or understand it. Okay, that's a great question. So, uh, so when I I try to use the term narrative war rather than warfare, and I'll give a couple of distinctions. One, obviously, warfare is how you fight war, whereas war is a thing in and of itself. Uh, my argument, uh, where maybe I differ a little bit from some of the other folks who write and speak about this is that we are in an era where uh, narrative and how narrative is used is more important than actions. Uh, so if you look at World War II, where there was a lot of uh, messaging and uh, you could call them psychological operations, information operations, things that get rolled up in narrative a lot of times, uh, what really won the war was a tremendous amount of violence in the form of ordinance delivered. As opposed to when you look at uh, even how the Mujahideen defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan in 1989, you could even argue how the Vietnamese defeated 
South Vietnam and the United States military in, in 1973 and then 1975 with the South Vietnamese, uh, how ISIS, how Al-Qaeda, how a bunch of different groups, the Taliban today, they emphasize narrative uh, with the intent of creating, through the use of narrative, uh, a disruption in how the uh, stronger actor is appealing to the populace. Uh, so there's a lot of um, uh, a disagreement or, or misunderstanding in how the term narrative is, is often applied. It, it's usually used as a way to just refer to uh, strategic communications or information operations or even psychological operations or military op uh, information support operations. Uh, as opposed to recognizing that this is really about challenging the very notion of how people perceive the world, which is what narrative gets at. It is, uh, so Ajit Man, uh, who works with narrative strategies, yeah. and she also yeah. works with a couple of other organizations and universities, uh, speaks quite a bit about narrative warfare, and, and she emphasizes that uh, narrative is as she talks about it, it is a sense-making tool. It's how people uh, determine or explain their environment to themselves. Uh, the way I tend to look at it is narrative is sort of a, a form of cognitive terrain. And what connects you to that terrain or what keeps you on a specific terrain are the stories that people have. Uh, so since you use sports, uh, uh, there, since you deal with athletes and, and sports, there's a great example. So you might have a narrative, and in this case, think of it as an identity that you're a good athlete. Uh, but then you have a competition where you perform poorly. So in, uh, great athletes don't perform poorly, so that poor performance is going to generate cognitive dissonance. Yeah. And in yeah. that cognitive dissonance, you're then going to have a story. And what's interesting is most people call those stories that you create excuses. And maybe they are excuses, but they're also a story to say, oh, I didn't get enough sleep last night, or I trained too hard, or uh, I was sick, or whatever. But you're gonna come up with a story that's going to solve for the cognitive dissonance uh, of when you have not met your narrative sense of the world and and recognizing how that plays out is a critical component to understanding how narrative functions whether it's in conflict or competition uh a lot of times in elections for example uh, we see this the 2016 election in the united states is a fantastic example of how narrative plays out you you have on the democrat side uh this this notion that they had a candidate that uh, and the opposing candidate, the current president, there's no way he could have beaten Hillary Clinton. Uh, clearly, Hillary Clinton was more politically acceptable. Uh, he was uh, offensive to a large portion of the electorate. All these things, Hillary Clinton should have won. So the narrative was the Clinton political machine was going to beat Donald Trump because that's just how it was going to be. And a whole lot of political people saw it that way. But then when she lost, that generated tremendous cognitive dissonance. And the larger the cognitive dissonance, the greater 
the story has to be to solve for it, uh, which is why religion, for example, has such uh, critical and one could argue outlandish stories. Uh, that the notion that God has a son or that God himself came down in the form of his son uh, is a necessary story to solve for the cognitive dissonance created by the notion of a human being died and then lived again because that generates lots of cognitive dissonance. So how do you solve that? Well, you have to have a, a pretty impressive story to solve for that problem. And that's in part why the cognitive dissonance generated by uh, the loss of Hillary Clinton or the defeat of Hillary Clinton by Donald Trump generated a rather large story, which was initially Russian uh, collusion and Russian bias or Russian support for the election, because, you know, the only way Donald Trump could have beaten Hillary Clinton was through some sort of foreign or, you know, external support. Yeah. So all of this gets into ways that narrative plays out. And so narrative war, and I, and I hate the definition that I've come up with, but so far I haven't come up with a better <laughs> one for me, all right. is that it is war where narrative is the dominant component. Uh, I tend to emphasize this combination of maneuver, firepower, and narrative. And I think all three of them are present in every war. Uh, narrative war is war where narrative is the dominant component of those three and where firepower and maneuver serve as supporting or in today's modern doctrinal terms, shaping functions to narrative. Yeah. So I've that's been, a long yeah, no, that's, yeah. So a lot to unpack just in that initial uh, start point there. So that's great. Uh, first question would be, I, I've kind of read up on you and watched some of your videos and your articles. I've looked up Ajit. Uh, she, we'll probably have her on as well at some point, but you mentioned that there is some, not conflicting ideas, but just some different perception about what narrative is and isn't. You mentioned that you're look, you kind of look at narrative with the topographical uh, and a topographical nature. I think you had mentioned um, where she sees it a little bit differently. Where um, she, I think her definition was that narrative is about the meaning of the information. Uh, are there any other areas that within this uh, within this space that you all kind of differ? Well, I, I completely agree with her, particularly in that statement about, and I really like that uh, statement that this is about meaning. Uh, she tends to emphasize, well, I, I think the, the difference is in uh, just approach. So because of who I teach and who I interact with, mm -hmm. I try to pitch this uh, in a way that I think military guys can get and most military guys can understand the concept of terrain and and so i use a terrain metaphor to kind of get at how narrative works whereas uh dr man tends to give i think a more of a cognitive metaphor yeah uh, i don't think she's she and i don't disagree on that uh she tends to to focus on the warfare side uh, uh to a degree i do too it's a lot of a lot of what we do, and I guess this fits with narrative itself, uh, where we have differences, they're mostly semantic differences. Uh, right. Because I'm, I'm trying to get at what I, I think that there is a fundamental shift in war. And, and because I teach at the general staff, the command of general staff college, 
we tend to emphasize a lot this notion that the nature of war doesn't change. And, and even if, whether that's true or not, uh, I have my doubts that it's true. But I would argue that the, that the, whether you call it the character or just the, the, whatever war is, has changed so much that it is difficult to make comparisons to other uh, periods because of the importance, not just of narrative, because once again, narrative has been present in conflict for millennia, uh, but the ability for actors today to generate and to publish narratives through the, the media that's available to them and the, the ability to broadcast uh, is, is so great that I think narrative has greater influence. The fact that almost anybody with a cell phone now can, can record images and can publish images and video and content in a way that was never true in human history before. The fact that almost everybody can be a publisher, that's just, that, right. that's crazy in history. And, and so I think that that has fundamentally reshaped how war gets conceptualized by a lot of our uh, opponents today. And I don't think it's, I think it's more than just the way we fight. I think it's how we conceive of fighting. And that's why I use war rather than warfare. And so that's probably the single biggest difference is Dr. Mann tends to talk about narrative warfare quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, because she's trying to talk about how it's fought, which I think is important uh, as well. But I just think that how we wrap our heads around war is shifted. And, and when I say we, I mean the human species, not Americans, because we still are fighting and conceptualizing war doctrinally and in other ways, very much like we have been for decades. And I don't think we fully grasp the need to shift. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I can think when I was in the conventional side, active duty, um, the special operations community um, really appealed to me just with the, the, the concept of thinking differently. That's kind of how I got uh, moved into PSYOP. Um, and just so I love th this narrative piece is just really fascinating to me because I just agree with it um, in such a sense. And one of my issues has been trying to wrap my head around it, obviously. And one of the problems has been there just seems to be so many different definitions of, of what narrative <laughs> is. Um, so that's kind of where I've had a roadblock. I've heard, you know, one of my favorites has been Ajit talking about how narrative war or warfare is about the meaning of information, like I mentioned, but I've also heard that it's about the structure or architecture of the narrative, of se narrative itself and the facts that are presented. Um, I've heard that it's about framing. It's about the assignment of motivation and meaning to the events that are occurring uh, that are being placed in a position in a specific way. So um, I've been trying to wrap my head around that. But what I'd love to know is and one thing that I've been trying to figure out is narrative and perception seem to be very closely linked. And so how can you what's the big difference between how somebody perceives uh, something and an intentional narrative? if that makes sense. Okay. You know, this is a really good question. So in, in response, so you first brought up all those different ways to approach yes, narrative. <laughs> and, 
And right. one, I think that I think they're all legitimate ways to get at it. And I think most people are talking around similar things, just with different approaches to it. Uh, so, so in, in as I conceptualize it, uh, the narrative in which you exist shapes how you perceive the world. Um, so. Uh, a, a simple way to to look at this is, once again, I, I think the current political environment in the United States is a fascinating narrative discussion, okay. yeah. right? Because President Trump can tweet something. If you are a President Trump supporter, then you might find that tweet hilarious. Uh, and you might be like, yeah, it's about time some president said that, right? If you're a President Trump uh, detractor or even hater, uh, then you might find that exact same tweet uh, and you might forward it or retweet it. I'm not a Twitter guy, so I'm getting the terms wrong. But you might retweet it with a comment that says, oh, the most offensive thing ever or how unpresidential or whatever. It's the exact same information. It's the exact same facts. But one person perceives those facts as uh, supportive of their thought, of, of, uh, of positive, and another person perceives them as horribly negative. So that's an example. Another one um, that gets into this, and, and I'll use the term narrative maybe better because I'm just sort of describing perceptions rather than narrative here. If, if you have been raised in a, in a world where you believe that uh, there's an oppression dynamic. Mm -hmm. uh, so you think that there are groups of people who are privileged and there are groups of people who are oppressed. And, uh, and within that, within the United States, you perceive uh, African-Americans as being an oppressed group and part of the the vehicle of oppression are the police. And, and if that's your part of what's fueled your narrative and it's, uh, cause all by that by itself, I don't think that would be a narrative, but if that's a part of your narrative in terms of how you see that, the idea of oppression oppressor is probably, you could argue that that could be a core fundamental within your narrative. Mm. Then when, when you see uh, news on a police shooting of an unarmed black man, you are going to be inclined to perceive that event as uh, unethical, immoral, probably even illegal, criminal, without even knowing any more of the facts other than simply right. uh, police officer shoots unarmed black man. If that's the only headline you see, you might you would be inclined to perceive that in a certain way. Whereas if you grew up in an area where the cops were the good guys where you were raised that, uh, you know, you respect the police and, and that's how, and that the system itself is a good system. And if you play by the rules, the police are your friends, that kind of thing. Then, and you see a headline that says police shoot unarmed black man, you might be inclined to say, huh, I wonder what the facts are in that case. And so before you judge that the police were wrong, you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and look to understand the circumstances because 
you are inclined by your narrative to see the police as good guys. And therefore, you're going to look for information that's going to support that narrative. One of the things that I, uh, I try to emphasize is everybody thinks in a direction, which is why I use terrain. Basically, I can drop a bit of information. Uh, and if you think of it like a continental divide, whether it goes to the east or the west on, on your personal narrative divide is going to determine where that drop of water rolls. Does it go to the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic Ocean? Mm -hmm. And it's going to go where the terrain leads it to go, where it's inclined to go. The same thing is true of information, that uh, your narrative, like terrain, is inclined toward a certain belief structure. And so when a bit of information hits your perception, then you are going to perceive it in a way that is in accordance with your narrative, what your narrative inclines you to believe. Yeah. Uh, and that's why perception and narrative are so tightly. Then that's why I like the, the terrain metaphor, because it, it easily connects with this notion of why do people perceive the same information very differently, depending on uh, what they're, you know, and, and, and once again, these terms get used. So Foucault talks about discourse and a lot of other people talk about discourse theory. I would argue discourse theory and or discourse in that context and narrative as I use it and I think as uh, Dr. Mann used it, I mean, we've worked together enough that I think we use it probably 99% the same, uh, are, are pretty much the same. Discourse theory, narrative, it's, it's, it's basically the same. It's, it's how you're inclined to perceive the world based off of this narrative identity that has been created. Yeah, so I, I spent uh, the last year or so really diving into the psychology, um, doing some research, because I was really trying to capture what it was that drove our beliefs. And um, that kind of stemmed from my, uh, I'd been studying Carl Jung and looking into personality and just trying to figure out what all of that, um, you know, how that all worked together. I kind of created the simple model, mental model for myself. And um, it was that, you know, Lewin's equation, you know, states that behavior is a function of a person in their environment. I'm sure that you know that. So environment and experiences were kind of like a, the basis for the model I had created. And that wrapped with perception, kind of the <laughs> idea of narrative, um, which then led to the story of yourself. So uh, this concept of the narrative theory of identity. And I really like, that really makes sense to me that we craft this story and that story is really what drives everything else, uh, our beliefs, our character, you know, the actions that we take. So it's interesting, uh, I'm bringing this up because you mentioned that narrative is really, you said it's previous to perception in many cases, um, since it's so, yes. it's so attached to the environment itself, which would be the experience that you go through. So okay, so, so you brought, you brought up one of the, the, the major sticking points in the use of the term narrative. Because narrative is linked with, in, in common English speech, with story. And we use it that way quite often. And, and I think, well, I know Ajit and I uh, and others use narrative more in this discourse line. So it's, it's, the, under, it's the foundation on which, uh, and, and story is what connects people's experiences to the narrative. Yes. Uh, and, and so story often, not always, but often follows events because now we're trying to explain the events within our narrative. 
like, wait, hold on, that seems to go different. Well, why does it go different? Well, here's the story that explains why this is the way it is. Uh, whereas narrative pre-exists perception. Uh, but as, as, as I'm trying to address it, and, and certainly the way I think about it is narrative is changing. So uh, because I'm working on a PhD on this topic, I've had to use sort of academic terms. So uh, one of the things, there are both exogenous and endogenous change to narrative. Uh, meaning there are things that cause narrative to change over time that are independent of the actor. Uh, and then there are ways that actors change the narrative. So uh, to give an example, the, the, the phrase I use, it's an example I use in my dissertation, but is the American dream. Well, that's, uh, th that is a simple meme that really describes a narrative. But that narrative means a lot of different things. And I would argue it means something different to each individual you talk about. What is the American dream? What's fascinating is how you perceive of the American dream does shape how you behave. So if you think the American dream is about getting ahead materially, then you are probably inclined to not only yourself, but to encourage your children to pursue careers and uh academic study that's going to cause them to get ahead they you want them to be engineers or doctors or lawyers or whatever else but if you think the american dream is about self-actualization and being happy in life then you're going to encourage your children to pursue careers or you yourself are going to pursue a career that causes you or that leads you to pursue things that make you happy uh whatever that is maybe it's uh serving others you become a mother Teresa kind of character or um uh, or it's artistic or, or whatever else. It doesn't necessarily need to be material. Material. So that's a simple example. But over time, <clears throat> so the American dream first appeared in, in literature in I think 1931 is the first book where he used it. Now, as soon as I said that, maybe 1831, whatever it was. Anyway, uh, the first time that that phrase was used, it's changed since then. Uh, that, that maybe when you threw out American dream in the early 1900s, people were thinking of whatever the white picket fence and the house and you owned your own property and whatever and you paid you had land or, or whatever right uh but today if you sling out american dream that's probably not what most people think that's not necessarily changed because a specific actor changed it it just as society changes over time and there's this exogenous change to the narrative much like uh, and i described this uh, in with the terrain metaphor there are erosional events there are depositional events there are tectonic events just like with land that changes the shape of land and those events also change the shape of narrative uh, and then there are also actors who shape and change narrative uh, through their actions so 9 11 that you could argue the narrative of the United States is we don't get attacked in our home. We're safe in America. And 9-11 shook that narrative. It, it adjusted it. It, it uh, created a new erosional channel that people now have to deal with. Like what, holy smoke, what, what does this mean? And as a result, we had all these other actions now, these other stories and the new story that got created at a, at a large level. Some refer to them as strategic narratives or, or war narratives. Uh, 
so they're not like the full underlying narrative, but they're they're more than just a single story kind of thing. And is the global war on terrorism, and that is a new narrative about how, or you could argue, not a new narrative, sorry, a new story about how America interacts with the world, as opposed to before it was more of an international. Certainly under uh, the Clinton administration, it was an internationalist narrative or story rather of how we interacted with the world, and and after 9/11, it now becomes a global war on terrorism, and 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 then there's a, this preemption nar- story, sorry of how we connect so so those are all ways that this shapes and 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 connects and how the narrative can change but it's usually sometimes it can be tectonic volcanic seismic where the change can be very very abrupt and and relatively quick but and one of the reasons why i use the tectonic uh, concept is because like with tectonic events on earth they are events that release uh, tensions that have built up over uh, long periods of time. So when 9-11 happened and and the radical shift in the American story occurred, that was not simply because of one event. There were a bunch of tensions that were created over time that allowed that shift to be so dramatic. Right. Um, I, I do love this idea, the concept, I think that you really created, which was this three-dimensional aspect of war and, and really bringing, to, to try and uh, narrow the gap of people that really misunderstand this uh, by presenting it in this way with the topographical feel and the, and the way that that plays out and how things change. I think that's a great way um, to communicate what it is you're trying to say. So I, um, I know that helped me at least. Um, I would love to get to something a little bit more tactical, which is something that you mentioned that right now, when it comes to messaging um, or narrative, the narrative space in general, that many times we, we, take, we take an action as a commander and then we try to follow up with some sort of a messaging. Sometimes we don't even do that. Um, so we really have been failing in this space in general. And I love how you said that it's time for us to flip that whole model you know, upside down and start creating the narrative and then reinforcing that narrative with actions by a commander, you know, or I'd love for you to, if you could expand on that concept and idea and what kind of response you've gotten when you, uh, by, you know, different higher level commanders, when you talk about narrative in general and doing this. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is a fascinating dynamic. Uh, so the, it's been now two years ago, I guess. Uh, I, I was in uh, in a, with a group, an international group, and uh, there was another American in the group, and and he made the comments like, "I understand what kinetic operations, uh, what a kinetic-led operation looks like. What does a narrative-led operation look like?" And then. Uh, so in trying to articulate that, I clung to uh, the battles for Mosul. And uh, you have the 2014 fight for Mosul that uh, ISIS leads, and then you have the 2015 to 17 fight for Mosul that the Iraqi government and then the U.S.-led coalition uh, participate in. And you see these two, and they're radically different. Uh, ISIS spent four years prepping Mosul and Nineveh province 
through a whole variety of activities to include everything from the negative side, like uh, threats, intimidation, murder, uh, coercion, all sorts of you know bad stuff, to just basic engagement where they would show up, they'd sit down and drink tea with somebody, they would talk with them, they would express their you know their mutual uh, dislike for the Shia-led government in Baghdad, and then over time, maybe in many meetings, maybe sometimes dozens of meetings, they would come to this notion that yeah, we both agree that we want to remove the the Baghdad-led government. We don't want them running things in Mosul. Hey, if we ever come to charge, we'd like to put you in charge of this village or whatever. And and so they built a narrative uh, structure because they knew who they were, they knew what they wanted to achieve, and they, they used years. I mean, they, this started even while we were still in the country in 2010 or whatever. ISIS was already having these meetings, building these relationships in, in Nineveh in particular, and Mosul in specific, or uh, Mosul in general, or Nineveh in general, Mosul in specific. And, and they laid out this carpet of engagement on which their actions later followed. And their actions tended to support their uh, their narrative of who they were, what they believed, what they were trying to accomplish. And then it was fascinating the efforts that they would go through when people challenged the connection between their actions and their narrative uh, and said, "Oh, they aren't in support." Then they would they would generate tremendous amounts of uh, strategic communications, whether through their online magazines, through their videos, to demonstrate why their actions were in fact consistent with their narrative. Uh, and many people can question how effective that was or accurate it was, and it really doesn't matter because they were able to generate something in the neighborhood. We don't really know how many, but 100,000 is one of the numbers. Uh, folks came to support them. That the, in one year, they recruited more people than the entirety of the U.S. military recruits in a year. Uh, and they did that from around the globe. That is the power of connecting your actions to your narrative and, and having a narrative that is globally resonant. Whereas, as you already identified, we quite often will say, oh, we're here to help. Uh, and so we have a narrative like, oh, we were the good guys going into Iraq. We had a, it was a defensive kind of narrative. These guys were uh, disrupting the global order. They were threatening uh, the United States and, and other uh, legitimate actors. Ergo, they needed to be punished. Okay, so we were going there as the uh, the punishment arm of the international order. That's kind of you could argue our narrative. But then, so basically, our narrative is we're here to help you as we get rid of these bad actors. But then we bomb or attack wedding parties. Well, uh, and or or we kick in doors and, and arrest innocent men at 2 a.m. and disrespect them and dishonor them and embarrass them in front of their wife and children and, and extended families, creating uh, expanded groups of uh, angry opposition and it's only after those events that we generate strategic communications to try to express how these events are in some way uh, supportive of this initial narrative that oh we're we're the good guys uh but because the 
I would argue what our biggest mistake was, uh, particularly with Iraq and Afghanistan, is we didn't understand what the narrative terrain was to begin with. We didn't understand how Iraqis perceived us before we even rolled in. Uh, so we had notions that, oh, we would be perceived as liberators. Uh, and, and those were inaccurate uh, characterizations of the existing terrain, uh, the narrative uh, space. And, and so even when we sort of do it right, where we sort of do have a message, if you ask most soldiers why they're fighting, most soldiers cannot really express the narrative. Or even if they can, like they kind of know, oh, we're here. Like a lot of guys were like, oh, we're here because of 9-11. Uh, and, and relatively quickly, both the U.S. media and others would say, well, uh, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. And so uh, even if our, our narrative was inaccurate, uh, l let's say that our narrative was that we were there because of 9-11, that was being undercut by our own citizens, both in the media and in and, and and, and academia and everything else. So if you would say, oh, well, that's not why we were in Iraq. We were in Iraq for some other reason. I would argue those other reasons most soldiers did not fully understand. And over time, whether it was WMD or it was 9-11 or whatever, all of those other reasons got torn away. And, and so very quickly in Iraq uh, in specific, whatever the narrative was, it, it very quickly became, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So basically, we're here to just do actions, and and it was very quickly separated from any overarching story, let alone a narrative. Yeah, like we're basically our story became we're here to kill bad guys. Yes, oh, that's really interesting. I'm kind of trying to connect the dots for me um, when I talk to athletes about uh, and coaches about, you know, developing their culture. I always tell them, you know, if your athlete doesn't know your core values, if I go to that athlete and they can't tell me what your four core values are, then they're not living those out. Um, there's no way that they can, if it's not on the forefront of their minds. So it's interesting that you mentioned how, you know, at the lowest level, there's no understand, there's no 30 second elevator pitch or one sentence about what that narrative is. And so because of that, they can't play that out and actually enact what that should entail and what it, that should look like, which is a real problem. So that's an interesting point that you make there. Um, Have you seen the movie Where the Game Stands Tall? No, I don't think I have. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's a football <laughs> movie about a, about a high school football coach and a high school football program that's the winningest uh, sports program in American – I think American history. I, I don't think any has won – uh, more games in a row than that high school football team did. Uh, and, and I would highly recommend it because, because there's a, a, a portion of that film that's about, because uh, this coach is all about having some core values. And there's a point at which his team is no longer in sync with those core values. Yeah. So the way I tend to talk about that uh, in my in sort of the academic terms is what effectively has happened is there's a disruption between the story, which is those, the coach's core values and well, or actually the story in the sense of how they're behaving, how the athletes behave or how they think they should behave and the core values, which is the narrative. 
So ideally, when when you are most secure is when your story and your narrative, your story is just like a layer on top of the narrative, like dew on the ground. Yeah. It's just there, they're, they're connected. But But the more that that story gets separated from the narrative, that's where disruption exists. And when disruption exists, that's when an opponent can come in and in that gap between the narrative and your story, the opponent can come in and further expand the disruption such that they can actually displace your ability to govern. And this is what happened for the U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan, because our stories were never really connected with the societal narrative, in part, in large part, because we never understood it. But yeah. I would argue, as I already explained, our, our story was never fully connected with our own narrative. Uh, and because, in part, we didn't know what our own narrative was. Yeah. And, uh, and, and because it was always separated, there was always there was a pre-existing disruption that made it really easy for uh, whatever they were, insurgents, militia, opposition, Ba'athists, whatever group you want to throw in, Taliban, uh, other warlords in Afghanistan, to then f see that separation and exploit that separation that, to then gain benefits within a given area. And, and that, I would agree, is true of, of any organization. So whatever your narrative, those core values are, mm -hmm. I would agree. And, and I, would, I would recommend you watch When the Game Stands Tall. Oh, yeah. One, I think th there's a couple of hokey scenes in it, but in general, I think it's a good sports movie. It's actually one of my favorite ones yeah. because I think the message overcomes any bad acting issues. Yeah, uh, and and the act is still is never that bad. So it's, yeah, it just goes to show uh, how a powerful story can overcome a lot. <laughs> yeah, and anyway, it's it's just, uh, and I think they they uh, they demonstrate a tremendous example of of the weakness in the team when there's a separation, and then there's the moments where the the coaches, well, the players really reassert how they need to connect back to the narrative and and draw guys back in. And that's when they start winning again and so forth. And, and really the rest of the movie is about drawing people tighter and tighter to that, those core values and, and the narrative. So, so yeah, I, I think that that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great connection. There. I appreciate that. I'll definitely be watching that movie. Kind of makes me think of facing the giants, which also has some really bad acting, but has a great storyline too, which I, I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but uh, that's always a, it's one of my favorites too. I, think I have. Um, have you seen forever strong? Yes, the rug is that the rugby one? Yes. Yes. Okay. Forever strong and when the game stands tall. When, when the game stands tall is high school football and forever strong is high school rugby. Uh, yeah, the it's on a the two the, the two coaches in those two movies essentially have the same core values. Ah. You you'll see that, that they're basically the same stories, just one's about rugby and one's about football. Cool. Yeah, I will definitely watch that one. Now, I, I do want to be, um, you know, I want I know we're already over. I do have like two more questions if you do have time. Okay. Um, and that'll I'll, I'll be shorter with my answers. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, these are two of like one of my bigger ones. And the first one is in relation to religion. I can't remember if it was you or Ajit who said that we can't really, you can't beat a narrative. You have to, to win this war you have to create a more meaningful narrative for them to attach themselves to, which is interesting. So my question is what, number one, would you agree with that? If that wasn't you who said that, 
And number two is how do you, how can we create a more meaningful narrative than a religious, I, I guess the, a religious narrative? Cause I feel like that would be very difficult to do. Okay. So with my students uh, recently, we talked about deception operations and we were, we were, talking about them in the in the context of the Normandy landings in 1944 and about the deceptions uh, leading toward the Pas de Calais landings versus the Normandy landings. And the question was, why was the deception successful? And the simple answer why the deception was successful was because it reinforced what the Germans already believed or what the Germans themselves wanted, believed they would have done in that case. And, and the point that I make is, much like with narrative, you can never deceive an enemy to believe something that is in opposition to what they already believe. Yeah. That's so a, you're, you're never... Isn't that a... You're um, never... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You go, what's your question? Oh, just, uh, I think, what's that principle called? Uh, McGruder's principle? Is that what you're referring to? It might be. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, but... So, but that simple basic law, if you will, goes with narrative as well. That, uh, so one of the things in, in FM 3.0, uh, our operations doctrine, we talk about, uh, I don't know that I can find it quickly enough, but we talk about uh, defeating or destroying, oh, here it is, uh, we talked about destroying an enemy narrative. When, a command, when commanders seek to destroy an enemy's narrative, commanders employ all means to affect the information environment to disprove, discredit, or make irrelevant the enemy narrative or to not deny its delivery. I would argue that there, there are very few times in history, maybe in World War II, where we destroyed an enemy's narrative. And in part, I would say that we did that because there is no Nazi Germany today and there is no Imperial Japan today. So you kind of know that we destroyed the enemy's narrative because they don't exist. But my point associated with that is think of the level of violence necessary to achieve that end. And so when we talk about destroying a, an enemy's narrative, that's what it takes. So if the goal is to destroy an enemy's religious narrative, I would say that it is that certainly the United States government is not going to inflict the level of violence necessary to achieve that end. So in that sense, even if it were theoretically possible, and I think that's debatable, it will never be done in today's world because the level of violence necessary to, to achieve that would be, is so great. We will not do it. Yeah. So now you have the question of, okay, I can't destroy their narrative. But I really don't need to. Uh, I would argue, I, I regularly speak uh, to Christian groups and, and occasionally I get to speak to Muslim groups. I've had lots of Muslims and audiences and other groups that are non-religious. Uh, and, and one of my arguments is there is so much, like if you're a conservative Christian in America, for example, your best friends politically are conservative Muslims. Because you want the same things for the school board as if you're a conservative Christian that a conservative Muslim does. Uh, so this notion that somehow I need to change someone's religious beliefs to be able to cooperate with them is, is a misnomer created by notions that uh, stories and messages that come out of the Crusades and others that somehow 
this religion is incompatible with civilized society. And I just fundamentally disagree with that. I've lived in the Muslim world long enough to know that, hey, it's a, it's a nice world to live in. And I know plenty of Muslims and they are great neighbors and awesome people. And uh, so it's not necessary to destroy that religious narrative. What I want guys to appreciate is that to live their religion, you don't need to blow me up. That's all I want. So I don't have to change their religion. I just have to change a portion of their beliefs. Now, I think in, in the video, you saw this notion of the, their layers to narrative. I don't need to, like, I'm not going to influence the core or the hardcore center of the Taliban yeah. or uh, ISIS to change their belief system. I'm trying to change those guys on the outside that might be happy living, living in a Western society and functioning and then going to the mosque, praying five times a day, uh, celebrating Ramadan with their family. That guy, I just want to let him know that he can be a good American and I'm going to respect him. And I don't, and he just doesn't need to go blow himself up or shoot up a, a theater. Right. Like, so I don't think it's as hard a turn in a lot of cases as we often make it like this isn't about convincing a hardcore isis fighter to all of a sudden becoming a card-carrying uh liberal democrat or or republican voting member you know and saying you know make america great again and sometimes we we, we like are pitching a really really hard sell and i don't think it necessarily needs to be that yeah good um my next question would be in regards to just this kind of a, not personal, but I, just for me personally, I would love to know what your thoughts are on how me as a, you know, I'm a tactical psychological operations officer uh, with a detachment. What, 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 what advice would you offer me as I continue down this road to better understand what this whole field is? Um, what what just might be some words of advice that you have for me? Okay, well, wow, it's a good question. You already are doing a lot of things I would say to do. So you're doing a lot of the good work. The the key part is, and and most most psyops guys already get this. Most special force guys already get. Certainly, special forces guys operating within their region of specialty already get it. Uh, the the fact that there's a benefit in knowing what the people think, what they believe, what language they speak, how the religion shapes their life, essentially recognizing the, nar the narrative terrain in the space in which you're going to operate. So you go in, you're always going to go in uphill because you're the American foreigner. So you're going to be moving uphill no matter what, but you need to understand how steep the slope is. Am I climbing a cliff? Am I just walking up a gradual slope? Where where are the valleys? Where are the where are the dangerous areas that I need to avoid? What are the words? What are the phrases? What are the things that have meaning? That specialization or that special knowledge is crucial, and it isn't about that you need to know that for everywhere. What what I would suggest, and I try to emphasize this to my students, is the importance of building a list of questions, so that. Every time you're about to deploy to a region, you, you know what questions you need to ask. So you can reach out to the local community college or, or, or university, ask a regional specialist to come in and you can ask them the right questions. Hey, you know, what are the stories they grow up on? 
how is it they believe? Somebody was telling me about, uh, oh, it's an Afghanistan story uh, that they tell in a village about how this one village was, like every man in the village was preferred to die rather than to surrender to uh, a foreign invader's will. And in fact, according to the story, and this comes from several centuries back, so it's almost, um, it's almost a fable kind of thing, but th this idea that, in fact, they did all die. Like, they all gave up their life rather than submit to this foreign power. Well, if that's, if that's their equivalent of George Washington and the cherry tree, if those are their sorts of foundational stories, that's critical to know mm. so that when you go in, you can, what, whatever your actions are, if, if, if the fundamental belief about Americans is that we're all liars, the first thing you should say should not be, trust me. Yeah. And, and too often, we, we don't know that. We don't know what they believe about us already or what they believe about how to interact with a foreign power. And as a result, we do the equivalent of saying, trust me with our first statements rather than recognizing they believe we're liars. Okay, so the first thing I need to do is demonstrate a direct cause and effect connection between what I say and what I do. And then I go in and, and act accordingly. Okay. So that to me is, is the key thing is, is connecting this theoretical stuff that you're already well ahead of uh, a whole lot of people I know uh, on this issue and and then connecting it to the practical. How do I turn this into useful skills? Yeah. Okay, so what what are the questions I need to ask? And building that sort of set of questions so that every time you deploy, you know, okay, I need to ask about this. What are their foundational stories and myths and and beliefs, etc.? Not just what is their religion. What I mean, some of that's useful because those can be easy cheats to helping you understand some of the deeper questions. Uh, and for many people, that alone is a huge step. But as you are already there, the next step is, okay, what are more specific questions that I need to ask? Okay. Yeah, I was um, initially, as you were talking there, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, well, that must mean just be a, a more of a cultural expert. But it seems like it's more nuanced than that. It seems like you're saying, if I'm, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that that I just have to better analyze the stories that are being played out within you know that culture with that yes okay yes i would i would just uh, because this is such a semantic topic i would yeah. say understanding the underlying narrative and then their stories that they use to connect to that narrative okay all right and, and okay yeah fair enough um, uh, we, we, i could talk about this all night but unfortunately both you yes. and i probably need to go do other things yeah. so. <laughs> I do. Um, my lab, this will be just a yes or no question is, would you agree or disagree that facts do not equal truth? Oh, yeah. True. So you would agree with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was something that I came across that just kind of blew my mind that I really appreciated. So, um, all right. Well, Brian, I appreciate you coming on and talking with me. I know that you're busy. So thanks again. I definitely pulled away at least three or four things. So definitely appreciate your time. and. Hope that maybe we can do this again in the near future if you ever ever have any time and I can send you over some questions maybe. So appreciate oh, it. Certainly. I, and, and this is true of, of any of this. I mean, it, 
the reason why I do a lot, certainly like the website and the other stuff that I do is simply to help, to help people like you. Uh, Cause there's just a lot of guys who aren't getting this and don't know. And so a large part of this is to create this clearing house of, yeah. of uh, both information and then ways to connect people to smarter folks. It's definitely needed. I know that my, you know, you can only do so much in 30 days because I'm on the reserve side and we never once talked about narratives. Um, we just, you know, just kind of blew my mind. But um, yeah, so it's been hard to really find the information I've, I've been looking for. So again, I appreciate it. And you're definitely good work. And uh, yeah, I know we all appreciate your, your wisdom and insight here. So hope you have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Ben Smith. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Captain's Coach Podcast.